Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to You're Getting To Me Again, a number one Billboard country single recorded by Jim Glazer and co-written by Scott's dad, Woody Bomar who is our guest on this very special Father's Day edition of Songcraft. Woody Bomar's songs were recorded by artists including Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn, Lee Greenwood, and Hank Williams Jr. before he switched to the other side of the desk to launch a successful career in music publishing, where he has worked with a long list of luminaries, including Blake Shelton, Tom Douglas, Bob DePiro, Eric Church, Bobby Braddock, Dirk Bentley, and Taylor Swift. In part two of this episode, you'll hear Scott's one-on-one conversation with his dad about his life and career, first as a songwriter, and then as a dedicated champion of Nashville's songwriting community. But first, in part one, Paul and I talk about the influence our dads had on our musical development, and we'll even get to hear an exceptionally rare recording of Paul's late father singing an original song. Though he was an artistically creative guy, Tom Duncan was actually a medical doctor, so this could be proof positive that literally everyone in Nashville has a secret song. Part one. This is our very special Father's Day episode. Father's Day is coming up on June 17th. It's right around the corner. Um, And I'm not personally a father. Um, But but you're kind of a father figure to me. I am in a lot of ways. As a mother figure, we talked about it Mother's Day. You're a mother figure to me as well. Yeah, I'm just an authority figure, I think, in a lot of ways. (laughs) But uh, you just became a father for the second time. Yep. So big congratulations to the Duncan family. Father to the power of two. Yes. you, uh, you See, since I'm not a father, you're kind of carrying the burden for both of us, and I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah I'm making um, sure that we're meeting our average. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so now you are the father of, uh, of two little girls. Yes. Which is uh, very cool. Um, and we wanted to take some time today. The, the interview you're about to hear is an interview that I conducted uh, with my dad. Um, so it's a, it's a son interviewing the father kind of thing. And, and I think it, it, it's a cool conversation. It's so cool. But Paul, I, i found out something today, uh, that I never knew before, which is that your dad mm-hmm. actually wrote at least one song. Yes. Your, your father was a, was a doctor. Yes. Um, and I did not know that he had ever, I didn't know that he had that kind of bent. I guess it makes sense given that you got it from somewhere, right. but, but, uh, so we thought it'd be fun to kind of talk about our dads and the influence they had on us musically. So, yeah. so yeah. So your dad wrote this song. Yeah. Well, he, he wrote uh, a song called Purdy Dirty Gertie. <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think there was any, uh, truth to the song. I don't think he actually knew this girl Gertie, but, uh, <laughs> he, he imagined this, this really just physically dirty young woman and wrote, wrote a song about her. Um, and, uh, I, you know what, do you want to hear it? Yes. I actually recorded it a few years back and and i've got a recording of it let's let's play some of it i have a girl named gertie lives on a mountain top my love for her just grows and grows i know it'll never stop pretty dirty 
dirty gurdy, pretty dirty gurdy, pretty dirty gurdy, you're the mud ball of my heart. I love every mud cake deep I love her ready hair. I love her two inch fingernails, we really make a pair. Pretty dirty gurdy, pretty dirty gurdy. One day we'll see the parson, one day she'll say I do, and then we'll have some children, and they'll be dirty too. Dirty so man. that's yeah, that's <laughs> that's, that's great. Purdy, dirty, gurdy. Um, and uh, my dad was a big fan of uh, he was a big fan of folk music bands like you know the Kingston Trio. Um, but he was also really into uh, country stuff like you know Eddie Arnold and, and Marty Robbins and um, you can kind of hear some of that in that song. I yeah, think. I was thinking like I was thinking about Billy Ed Wheeler when, <laughs> when I was listening to that, and I thought, oh, it's it's that Kingston Trio influence because you know Billy Ed yep. wrote a bunch of the Kingston Trio hits, and you can you can hear that. You know your your dad's. Uh, you you could tell who he's a fan of. Yeah, yeah, his inflections and even the way the song is crafted. He he had another thing that he wrote, which is more of a poem, but it was called Rooster Ben, and it was a long story about a a, a mountain man that lost his pet rooster, Rooster Ben, and then he he found the man who had taken him, and then the man who had taken him was just giant, and there was nothing he could do to fight and get his rooster back. So they sat down and ate him together. <laughs> and so the, the the last line is you know he said pass the salt and they both ate rooster bin. <laughs> you know your dad uh was like he was he you know I knew your dad obviously as we grew up together but uh well you and I grew up together yeah. your dad and I didn't grow yeah, up together. Right. Uh, <laughs> but your dad was like an exceptionally kind mild-mannered uh, sort of guy, right? So I like that that his creative <laughs> output was semi twisted. A little bit of black humor in there, <laughs> right, yeah. That's <laughs> right. that's funny, you know. And it, it, just thinking about how like how our dads sort of shaped our own like creativity yeah. and and our musical instincts and stuff, you know. Um, I I'm guessing, you know, your dad was really into the singing cowboys and the Kingston Trio yep. and that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm guessing that you didn't necessarily appreciate that, like when we were in high school. Yeah, not uh, not to the degree I kind of wish that I had. You know, it would have right. been nice to bond over that stuff. And and w- once I got older, we had some some times we would sit and listen to stuff together. I, I do remember him getting me into Buddy Holly when I was in high school, and we were both into Elvis and some of that stuff. So some of the early '50s rock. But I yeah, I I kind of missed the boat on connecting with him on some of the bards of uh, <laughs> folk and country. But which is why it's so cool that you had a chance to have this conversation with your dad. And and you guys have always had a, a relationship that's that's been kind of had music at its center. Um, and one of the cool things I, I think about listening to this for me is that your dad also kind of has helped me a lot, um, yeah. you know, making my way in the world of music and, you know, worked as a publisher for me and did some plugging for me and definitely spoke into my songs uh, right. with a ton of wisdom, um, you know, kind of helping me understand what what worked and what didn't and what the market needed and what it didn't and, and he uh, won't sugarcoat it <laughs> no, <laughs> no but it's, it's that kind of uh it's that kind of direct approach that young songwriters really need yeah 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 you know my dad when i was a kid uh we'd listen to like oldies radio in the car and he would quiz me nice uh, who what artist is this uh <laughs> what year did this come out who's the bass player in this band so this probably gives a lot of insight into uh 
why I'm very obsessed with uh, right. trivia and and facts and right. and all the research uh, that goes into this show because um, I, I had it drilled into me from a from a young age. <laughs> and your dad is a bass player as well, which is interesting that he would ask you who's the bass player in this band. It sounds like he had a passion for making sure the bass player didn't get forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> well, he'd ask me who the keyboard player is and the drummer and who produced it and everything too. So, yeah. you know, no stone left unturned. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, enough time's been spent on the lead singer, you know. Indeed, indeed. The the little guy needs to get yeah. his due. Let's celebrate the bass players. <laughs> Very cool. Well, happy Father's Day to you, Paul. Thank you. And uh to all the dads listening out there and and uh I know that, you know, sometimes when we're like teenagers, we don't realize the kind of impact that our, our fathers have on us, especially, you know, if you're musical, you know, like we are. And so, uh, I'm, I'm just grateful that we had dads that were, uh, very much supportive and encouraging yep. of our creative endeavors. And, uh, so, yeah. and, and if you're listening now and, and your dad is around and he's trying to play some song that you think is lame in the background, you know what? Father's Day's coming up. Tell him to turn it up. <laughs> Part two. Woody Bomar began his music career as a songwriter, landing two number one hits with Conway Twitty's We Did But Now You Don't and Jim Glazer's You're Getting To Me Again. He hit the top 20 with Loretta Lynn's Cheatin' on a Cheater and had songs recorded by Lee Greenwood, Lynn Anderson, T.G. Shepard, Rhonda Vincent, Hank Williams Jr., and others. Bomar eventually moved to the other side of the desk at Nashville's Combine Music, where his duties included promoting the songs of Chris Christopherson, Dolly Parton, Guy Clark, Tony Joe White, and others. Woody soon departed and teamed with business partner Kerry O'Neill to launch Little Big Town Music with former Combine writers John Scott Sherrill and Bob DePiro. Serving as president and general manager, Bomar would go on to sign a stable of songwriters that earned 15 number one hits, as well as 30 top 10 singles, and more than 500 major cuts by artists such as Faith Hill, George Strait, Tim McGraw, Reba McIntyre, Diamond Rio, Kenny Chesney, Waylon Jennings, Vince Gill, Neil Diamond, Dusty Springfield, and Peter Frampton. Little Big Town was ultimately purchased by Sony ATV, which hired Bomar as Senior Vice President and General Manager. During his eight-year tenure with Sony, Woody signed Dirks Bentley, Rascal Flatts, Josh Turner, Marty Stewart, and Blake Shelton, and was instrumental in bringing Taylor Swift, Gretchen Wilson, Eric Church, and Miranda Lambert to the company's roster. In addition to the new signings, Woody worked with an existing catalog of songs by Tom Douglas, Dean Dillon, Rodney Crowell, Gretchen Peters, Bobby Braddock, Merle Haggard, Willie Nelson, Hank Williams, and many others. After departing Sony ATV, Woody launched his second independent publishing company, Green Hills Music Group, where he continues to advocate for great songwriters and secure recordings by artists such as George Strait, Luke Bryan, Jake Owen, Rascal Flatts, Hunter Hayes, and Hilary Scott of Lady Antebellum. Woody is a two-time recipient of the Nashville Songwriters Association's President's Award, and is an inductee into the Middle Tennessee State University's Mass Communications Wall of Fame. Dad, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you, Scott. It's good to be here. And it's good to be here in your music room, a.k.a. my former high school bedroom. I like what you've done with the place. All right, well, let's do this. Um, you grew up in a small town about an hour outside of Nashville called Wartrace, Tennessee, with a father who worked for the railroad and was a farmer and a mother who was an elementary school teacher. When did you first figure out that uh, music was something that was calling to you? 
I will tell you the pivotal moment that really got my interest in music and made me want to follow music with passion was when I heard Party Doll by Buddy Knox. I just remember the very day I was visiting a friend's house and I sat in the middle of the floor putting that needle back on that turntable over and over all afternoon listening to Party Doll. I think it might have been soon after that that I first saw Elvis on television on the Ed Sullivan Show. Um, I did get a guitar for my 15th birthday, and that was my very first K-brand guitar, and that's when I really started being serious about it. So then you started putting together bands and and really playing music uh, in front of audiences as a high school student? I did. Uh, We had a little band, and we rented um, a local hall and put on dances, charged admissions, just paid rental on the place, charged admission and had dances. Did that in high school. Then, of course, in college, had another college band um, that played there. And I've really, most of my adult life, I've played in like hobby bands, you know, just for fun and um, just what I enjoy. What was the name of your first band? First band, I believe it was called The Mystics. I don't think I ever knew that. Um, In terms of songwriting, when did you first start coming up with your own material as opposed to, you know, just doing cover songs uh, in the various bands that you played with? I guess also as a teenager, just sitting in my room practicing guitar and uh, just started putting together some ideas. What do you remember about the first real song you wrote? I know that you know it was called Clem the Clam. I did know that, but I I like to hear you say it. Um, What was the inspiration for Clem the Clam? I can't remember any inspiration other than I had just learned how to play standard progression on the guitar, and the image of a clam came to me. That was my muse for the day, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Do you remember the lyrics? Everybody around knows me. I'm king of the sea. I remember that much. <laughs> so the songwriting career would uh, would be a little while later, but didn't you get a job um, working at a music store when you were still in high school? I started taking guitar lessons at a music shop, and after about six months, the teacher quit, and then I got the job teaching lessons. Because I was teaching pretty, I mean, I was learning pretty quickly. I've never become a great guitarist, but I was learning pretty quickly. And it was kids mostly 10, 11 years old. And here I was 15, I guess, at the time. And it was mostly younger kids even taking lessons. So I could teach them simple little things, and that worked out. And it was actually a record store, but you kind of played a big part in changing the store's entire focus, right? Yeah. That's true. Uh, it was a, completely a record store, and I told the owner that I wanted to get a Fender, a white Fender Stratocaster like Al Jardine's in the uh, Beach Boys. And um, he said, well, if you write to the Fender company, you know, and they agree to sell it to us, I'll, you know, you can have it for whatever we get it for. So I wrote the letter. He signed it. He mailed it in, and within about two or three weeks, someone came by, a Fender rep, asking him if he would like to have a Fender dealership. Now, to get a Fender dealership, you have to pay thousands of dollars in inventory to even be considered for a Fender dealership. So you were obviously a go-getter in terms of finding a way to get your dream guitar, you know, booking gigs for your band, teaching lessons, trying to find ways to surround yourself with music. Um, When you enrolled in college at Middle Tennessee State, what was your career goal then? Did you think at the time, hey, I'm going to go into the music business? Not many people at that age think of seriously that you can make a living dealing with songs and music. 
And I certainly was of that mindset. I mean, nowadays, maybe maybe people would think that more so. But in those days, it was more just like a dream or a fantasy. And I really didn't have any other passion. And I just picked the easiest major that I could find because I didn't really have anything that I considered a serious career direction. I knew I was interested in songwriting and was doing it and was interested in music business, but I didn't seriously believe that that would become my life. So what did you study? Uh, My major was uh, general business and I minored in English and psychology. Well, you put together a band at MTSU called Woody and the Woodsman, which uh, later changed names to the Soul Division because you were playing uh, a lot of R&B stuff. Uh Were you able to make any inroads in the music business during that era since you were located, you know, fairly close to Nashville? I did have a couple of connections in the music industry. Uh, One in particular that was a friend of mine named Johnny Wilson. I had met him when I was still in college. Um, He was working for a pest control company there in the town. Johnny Wilson had worked at a for a band in Lubbock, Texas, or Odessa, Texas, called Roy Orbison and the Teen Kings. But as time had gone by, I guess Roy had just kind of moved on to fame and fortune, and uh, Johnny was kind of left behind. But he was coming to pursue being a Nashville songwriter and had landed in this nearby town where Middle Tennessee State University was, a town called Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And he had introduced me to a publisher named Bob Beckham, who had a young company called Combine Music. I was taking songs in, and I had written a song that I thought would be great for Joe Tex. And I took it in, and Beckham said, well, uh, he, he did like the song, and he said, but Joe Tex's producer produces songs from that Joe writes and songs from his publishing company. But he said, I've just met this guy a couple of weeks ago that came into my office. And he said, he's like a white Ray Charles. He said, he's a very soulful guy. And his name is Tony Joe White. So he did play the song for Tony Joe. And it did get recorded by Tony Joe. The album was produced by Billy Swan. And my song did not make the album. But I knew that it was recorded. It's called It's Not What You Got, It's How You Use It. So fast forward till about three or four years ago, Rhino Records put out a collection of the complete Tony Joe White recordings on Monument Records. I discovered this CD set, and lo and behold, I looked on it, and there was my song, It's Not What You Got, Composer Unknown. Sometimes it's the little things you do That makes your baby feel blue And you'd better be careful what you say Don't make her turn away And if you give her good love She won't refuse it Cause it's not what you got it's how you use it. My first cut may be my last. <laughs> it just just came out a short time ago. So you got your first uh, cut when you were in college, although you didn't know it for a long time. But didn't you also work at a, a radio station when you were in college, too? No, that was right after college. I got a job at a radio station in Franklin, Tennessee. 
and lasted a couple of months there before I got my draft notice. It was during the Vietnam War, and, and everybody that had a college deferment, most guys got drafted pretty much right after you finished college. And it was in sales. It wasn't really in the creative side in terms of on-air broadcasting, although I did voice a couple of commercials, but I'm sure I sounded very amateur at that. So once you were drafted into the Army, did you have any opportunities there to uh, pursue your musical interests? I was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for a year, and being a draftee, the term of service was two years. So I knew that if I got past one year at Fort Leonard Wood, I would not get drafted. I mean, I would not get called to overseas duty in Vietnam because the tour of duty in Vietnam was one year. So if you got past a year in the stateside duty, but I mean, just right at the pivotal moment, here came the notice. So I did wind up wind up going to Vietnam. But to, uh, to answer your question about music, I really don't think I did anything in music, except that I remember um, one day when a certain Jimi Hendrix brand new album, it was the Are You Experienced album, came out, and a guy that I worked with there at Fort Leonard Wood had a uh, turntable, and we listened to that all day. I also remember hearing you talk about waiting for the plane that was going to actually take you to Vietnam, and you were just hoping that it would be delayed long enough so you could hear the new um, Beatles single that they were about to play on the radio. Yes, they said, kept saying on the radio station there in California where I was waiting, um, we're going to be premiering the world premiere of the brand new Beatles single in a, in a few minutes, in a few minutes. And sure enough, they played Hey Jude for the first time, and then my name was called, and off to Vietnam I went. <laughs> With na, 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 ringing in your head. Ringing in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did get to bring music back into your life. Talk a little bit about the job um, that you had in the Army when you were stationed over in Vietnam. When I went to Vietnam, my job was a personnel records specialist. It was an office desk job. But I was in the Saigon area, and there was a television show on the American Forces Vietnam Network, AFVN, called Star Search. And in the military newspaper, they gave information about how you could audition for that show. So I did go and audition, um, and I was on the show, and then that got me connected with a division called Command Military Touring Shows, CMTS. And I wound up getting transferred from the personnel records job into this other job and became an entertainment specialist, which is pretty sweet duty to be an entertainment specialist in Vietnam in the military. So what's kind of the job of, a, of an entertainment specialist? Well, I did some touring. We put together a little folk trio called The Common People and folk and country music. And after a two-month tour that we did, they would take these shows into fire bases, places that were too dangerous for um, USO shows to go. So they would helicopter us in. We had one microphone on a stand, two guitars, and a tambourine. And we would do shows like in the mess tent where the men would eat. We'd set up our little PA system. We had one guitar amp for the microphone. And so after I did that for a couple of months, then I was permanently reassigned to put together other groups 
that would tour and do those things. They would come out of their unit and tour for a couple of months and then go back to their unit. So when you say these shows were too dangerous for um, the USO tours, are we talking serious risk of coming under enemy fire to to go play a gig? Yes. I was in a helicopter that was shot at one time that I know of, possibly other times. But uh, we didn't feel terribly threatened, but there was always mortar fire in the distance. There was always gunfire in the distance, wherever we were. And, it, and this was all military guys that put together these shows. So, of course, they bring us in. And even though we had custom-made costumes for our little folk group, you know, here comes the show and the military guys are all going, well, where are the girls? Where are the girls for the show? They're expecting something like a USO show with some oh, pretty yeah. girls, you know? It says a lot about the mindset of uh, musicians that were, you know, willing to risk getting shot just for the opportunity to play music for a bunch of people who were actually hoping for something else. Well, you know, musicians, they just, that's their whole world and they love it when they're doing it. So we just did it and we just had fun. Sounds pretty awesome. Um, so meanwhile, your mom, my grandmother, who we knew as Mother B was back in the U.S. and was doing everything she possibly could to try to get her boys' songs heard by someone in Nashville. Um, remind me of the details of what she was doing to try to help you out while you were thousands of miles away in Vietnam. She went up and down Music Row in Nashville lugging a Wallensack reel-to-reel tape recorder with some of my songs on reel-to-reel tape. And she would go into people's offices and they would feel sorry for her, and in some cases... And actually listen to the music. And um, you know, no real cuts resulted from that. But still, I mean, what a wonderful thing for a mother to do. Yeah. Um, well, so after about a year in Vietnam, you returned home to begin your career. And what was your next step? Though I still was interested in the music business, a friend of mine said, well, I, I've got a friend who has an advertising agency. You're a creative guy. You're a writer. Um, you know, maybe you'd be interested in that. And so he did introduce me to his friend. I went and interviewed and was hired on the spot as a beginning copywriter. Now, this is not like song copyrights, but it's like writing advertising copy. And um, started there and worked there for 10 years by the time I left the advertising agency, I was executive vice president, but I just reached a point where I could no longer stand not to pursue the music business. I just knew that I did not want to retire in that career and always wonder, gee, I wonder if I could have done anything in the music business. And I just literally reached a point where I couldn't stand not to anymore. So did you transition out of advertising into music um, gradually, or did you just kind of put all your eggs in that basket and jump off the cliff. I did quit the agency. I always say that I resigned as executive vice president of Nashville's oldest advertising agency to become an out-of-work songwriter, and that I was successful at being that for about 18 months. But, but the reality is I did have some freelance jobs, and the agency was very agreeable and, and gave me some freelance projects to work on. I connected with uh, a little bit with a company called Cedarwood Publishing Company, which was one of the early Nashville publishing companies. Co-wrote a song with a guy there named Michael Heaney, who has gone on to be a very successful songwriter. He was a song plugger and a writer there. And we wrote actually wrote a song together that did get recorded. I guess that was my first recording. 
It was a song called The Jogger by a fellow named Sheb Woolley. And then I reconnected with Johnny Wilson, and we wrote a song together that helped get me out of the advertising agency. It was called Cheatin' on a Cheater, and it was recorded by Loretta Lynn. I was a fool for a long, long time. I finally got wise to you. You've been having some good time, baby. Now I'm gonna have some too. Cause cheating on a cheater. Before it was ever released, I resigned from the advertising agency. I just knew that this was the course of my life, and my family was not too happy about it because I was in a pretty good-paying job, but it just wasn't what I was sent here to do long-term. Makes sense. Um, Loretta Lynn's recording of Cheating on a Cheater actually became a top 20 country single. Um, Is that success what led to you ultimately getting signed as a writer at Combine Music? Actually, I was still just bringing in songs to Combine and I wasn't I was never actually signed there as a staff writer. I just brought in individual songs and if they the ones that they liked, they published and others they just passed on. And there were others who had success there that never were officially identified as staff writers, but they were treated like part of the family. It's interesting you use the word family, um, because this was a, a very different time for independent publishers in Nashville. And Combine, you know, published people like Dolly Parton and, and Chris Christopherson, but also quite a few lesser known behind the scenes people as well. Talk about just kind of the, the spirit and the atmosphere at the company in those days. Well, it was just a group of people who just loved music. They encouraged each other. They kind of cheered each other on. Uh, Dennis Lindy was certainly part of all of that, who, who you know, had the big hit Burning Love for Elvis and, and many other country hits. But it was very much a family environment, and Johnny really kind of helped usher me in to all of that. And one day, Johnny and I were writing. We had written a song for a movie called Coast to Coast. It was recorded by T.G. Shepard. So we had written that movie. We had gotten to read the script and, and wrote the song, the title song for the film, Coast to Coast. And another day, we had read another script, and we got together to write, and that day was an incredibly productive day, and we wrote two songs. And I came in the next morning with the work tapes of the songs to turn them in for the publisher to listen to that day. And when I came in, the receptionist was crying. And I said, is Johnny here yet? And and she just looked at me and I said, what's the matter? She said, Johnny died last night. And he had died very suddenly of a heart attack. No warnings, no seeming health issues. And then after a few months went by, Johnny was a song plugger there as well as a, a writer. And then after a few months went by, I was offered the job there, uh, f- basically filling his slot. But my specific 
hiring was for the purpose of pitching Chris Christopherson and, ironically, Tony Joe White songs hmm. for those two writers specifically. Yeah. So I got to be good friends with Tony Joe at that time and, you know, talked about, laughed about the fact that he had cut one of my songs all those years ago that didn't make the record. A song, of course, that had, you know, gotten cut initially because Johnny Wilson had connected you with Bob Beckham at Combine. And, you know, it's almost like Johnny was kind of this guardian angel in your life. He helped you kind of make some of those first inroads into the music business. He, you know, co-wrote your first charting single with the Loretta Lynn thing. And and even though the circumstances were obviously very sad, he even opened the door, you know, for your first real job in music publishing. I very much think of Johnny that way. as His nickname was Peanuts, and I usually think of Peanuts. <laughs> and uh, I do think of him as, as seemingly sort of an angel, sort of divine intervention into the direction of my life. Definitely. Um, so at this point, you're pitching songs by other writers, um, but you're also still writing songs of your own. And in 1982, you had a number one record um, with Conway Twitty's recording of We Did But Now You Don't. Falling into love so young Seems so right How could we know we'd grow up And grow apart All we really wanted Was each other in the night But it's plain to see We've had a change of heart The day we said I'd I really did, and so did you Love came so easy, coming true I wish we could find that love again But I'm afraid we won't Cause when we said I'd do, we really did But now you don't Did you think of yourself as having kind of this dual career as being both a song plugger and a songwriter? In a way, the publishing company would really get active about 10 a.m. I would go in at 8 a.m. and write songs, usually with other writers, with co-writers. And I got to a very productive relationship with a guy named Pat McManus. And um, that was one of the songs that we wrote in our early morning sessions. You don't have a lot of uh, co-writers who are eager to get together at 8 a.m. That's not <laughs> songwriter hours. But Pat was a morning person, so we would get together and write. And we had uh, quite a few successes. If I remember right, you guys actually had to do a little bit of uh, rewriting on We Did But Now You Don't, right? That's true. And uh, Bernie Clifford was also a writer with us, with Pat McManus and me. And, you know, actually... We didn't really do the rewrite. We wrote the song as we did, but now we don't. And the message was when we fell in love, when we said I do, we did. We did, but now we don't. When Conway Twitty got it, it was totally his idea to change it. We did, but now you don't. And that's the way that the song was recorded because Conway knew his audience very well. And he knew that women listening to him, if he said, we did, but now you don't. He knew his women fans would be thinking, well, I love you, Conway. <laughs> right. So it was a it was a very astute move on his part. It worked great for him. Didn't you tell me one time that Conway liked to be pitched songs uh, where the demo was sung by a female singer? 
Yes, um, I think uh, he was one of the few people, you know, most artists, when they hear a song and if it's a female voice on it, they think it's a, it's a girl song. But Conway could hear through that, and he sometimes um, enjoyed hearing female demos, songs that he wound up recording. And as a matter of fact, I believe Kathy Matea did sing some demos of songs that Conway Twitty recorded. Well, following your Conway hit, you had a couple of album cuts uh, with Lynn Anderson's recording of This Time the Heartache Wins, and then uh, Lee Greenwood cut Lady's Love. There's a few things about the ladies a man needs to That song was actually supposed to be a Lee Greenwood single, but uh, it didn't quite happen. It was slated to be the next single. He was performing a concert at the Grand Ole Opry House here in Nashville. And so we went to the um, concert. Carol and I went to the concert and we're waiting for him to sing it and to announce that this is going to be my next single. But before he got to that, he sat down at the piano and he said, you know, I've got a song that I just wrote a couple of weeks ago and we've just recorded it. I'd like to play it for you now. And it's called God Bless the USA. Well, obviously, God Bless the USA became the new single. Ours was set aside. It was still on the album, but obviously that became his classic song and such a big part of his identity. But Ladies Love has earned quite a bit of money in foreign territories, and I still get foreign royalties for that song. Well, you had a couple of uh, lower-charting singles in 1983 and 1984, including Best of Families, a song you co-wrote with John Gerard that was recorded by uh, Big Al Downing, who, just as an interesting footnote, is one of the small handful of African-American country singers to have had any real chart success. Um but in the fall of 1984, you were back at the top of the charts with Jim Glazer's recording of You're Getting To Me Again. Look in the mirror and I see a stranger. I feel it coming and I know the danger. It's plain to see you're getting to me again. Now I spend every waking hour thinking about you. I just can't learn to live my life. That song went to number one in Billboard and is another one that you wrote with uh, Pat McManus. How did your partnership with Pat work in terms of kind of what you each brought to the table? I brought a lot more of the lyric content and he brought much more of the music content. He had a good melodic range in his voice. He was a good singer and I'm sure at one time he probably aspired to be an artist himself. But he, he found his greater success in, in the songwriting side. But definitely, it's amazing how 
Um, there are certain things that stimulate you. I got most of my songwriting ideas driving in to Combine Music early in the morning. And I guess I sort of felt an obligation to come in with an idea, but that's really where I, most of my ideas came as I was going to the session. I would have an idea of something to write that day. And it usually turned out to be something he would like, and he would come up with some melodic ideas pretty quickly. And that's really how that relationship worked back and forth. Eventually, you became much more of a music publishing guy than a songwriter. Um, was there a, a conscious decision there to shift your focus, even though you were writing hit songs? There was definitely feelings of conflict in my life because I, I knew that some of the other writers assumed that I was taking advantage of my relationship with artists and plugging my songs. It wasn't true. I mean, I went for a year where I just made it a point I wasn't going to plug a single one of my own songs. But then I reached a point where I thought, you know, I've really got to decide which direction I'm going here. And I just somehow knew that my long-term greater gift was probably on the business side. You know, there are guys like Bobby Braddock and Harlan Howard and um, Hank Cochran and guys that just for decades were very successful writers I didn't have the level of gifting or talent that those guys have. Uh, Bob DePiro is someone else that I was starting out with, and I think we wrote a little bit together early on, but he's one of those guys that's just has gone for decades that's sort of part of my early music business world. And uh, But it just, it just felt like the right direction for me was to pursue the publishing side. I really liked it. I felt like I was good at it. And so I did pretty much make a decision. I guess once a songwriter, always a songwriter, and maybe I still write a little bit, but I do not try to compete commercially with the professional writers that I'm an advocate for and that I represent. Well, at Combine, you pitched um, The Judd's first single. Uh, you pitched Restless Heart's first number one hit, That Rock Won't Roll. You pitched uh, Reba McIntyre's chart-topping hit, Little Rock, um, Ray Charles' recording of three-quarter time. I I'm always fascinated by how song pluggers know what songs to pitch to what artists. Um, was there someone who mentored you there about pitching songs, or did you just have an instinct for it or, or learn on the job? How did you kind of gain that skill of how to cast certain songs and, and know what you should pitch to certain artists? I think I learned by watching the other, there were a couple of other pluggers at the company who were very good at what they did, and I, and I was watching what they did, and we would have songwriter meetings where all the writers would get together and hear new songs that had been turned in, and we would all kind of pitch out ideas to the song pluggers about who we thought a certain song would be good for. And I think the other pluggers picked up on me as a writer, sort of helping out with the casting. Then when the time came that the boss decided to fill that vacant slot, he asked the other pluggers if they had any ideas of who might be good. And both of them said, how about Woody? So he called me in, and that's, that's how I got the job doing that. And, you know, it's just like most things that you do, you might not know exactly why you were led into doing it or why you were good at a certain thing. But I would just listen to the songs and look at who was recording and just decide what I thought was the best song for their career and, and pitch that. And then you always, as a song plugger, are trying to kind of look a little bit ahead. You don't want to plug them exactly what they're doing now because the artists always want to feel like they're moving forward in their musical tastes and career. Um, in the case of that Judd's 
pitch that you mentioned, that song that I pitched had been a B-side of an Elvis Presley record already. It was a Dennis Lindy song. And the song was called For the Heart. One of the lines in it was Had a Dream, and when the judge recorded it, they recorded it as Had a Dream. But it had had been a B-side of an Elvis record, and when I got the call from the producer, I'm looking for a song that a mother and daughter can sing, I thought, wow, well, that's not your traditional love song as such. It's something a little bit different. And that idea just came to me, and I, and I, I brought him that song, and he thought it was a great idea, and, and cut it. So in 1987, you left Combine and started Little Big Town Music Group with Carrie O'Neill. And by that time, you had fully transitioned from songwriter to um, music publisher. Uh, what prompted you to strike out and, and do something new when you had kind of carved this spot out for yourself at Combine? Combine was for sale because Monument Records was a part owner of Combine and they had bankrupted. So the bankruptcy court required that the publishing company be sold, that it be liquidated uh, to help settle Monument's financial obligations. And so everyone was kind of looking out for other opportunities. I mean, it was on the block for about three years before it actually sold. Um, There were some people who came in to look at it who did ultimately buy it, whose names I'd rather not say, but there were some guys from New York, and I thought, these are not the kind of people I really want to work for. And Carrie O'Neill approached me. Carrie was an accountant, but he came to Nashville to pursue songwriting as well. He had been pitching his songs. But he was a CPA and had and was working for an accounting firm, and he came to me with the idea of starting a publishing company. And I said, you know, I'm basically a song plugger and a song writer, even though I have the title of manager here, you know, as far as running an entire company. He said, you're smart, you'll learn. And he had a lot of confidence in me. And Kerry was more the financial partner, so he went out and... He got investors from what we call old money Nashville. In other words, people who had been in in Nashville maybe for generations and wealthy people and talked them into investing in the music business. And it was miraculous at the time because the financial community in Nashville had no interest in the music business at that time. But he had um, an investment person who was an investment advisor for some of those folks, and he set up meetings for Kerry to make a presentation to them. And it was the first time that that kind of money had been invested to actually start a music business here in Nashville. And do I remember correctly that you had your first number one record on the company's first anniversary? It was very incredible that we had a song that was written demoed, pitched, recorded for an album, picked as a single, climbed up the charts, and reached number one on the anniversary of when we started the company. Those things just don't happen that fast. That song was called Do You Love Me? Just Say Yes by Highway 101. You got something to say What ways did the fact that you had been a songwriter yourself shape your approach to running Little Big Town as a publisher? 
Well, I just think it helped me understand the mentality of songwriters, the emotional roller coaster that is the life of a songwriter. Because every writer, when they have a hit, they wonder, is this my last one? Is there any way I could ever possibly do this again? There's a lot of self-doubt because creative people are just people with a lot of emotions going on inside them and a lot of self-doubt. And I just think that that going through that myself as a songwriter just help me understand what they're going through. In 1991, uh, Rhonda Vincent recorded your song Lucinda on her Timeless and True Love album after you had ostensibly left songwriting behind. Well, I did pitch it. I mean, I did send it for the project. I had written it earlier, and I and I was still maybe dabbling a little bit in songwriting then. Um, I don't have any real memory beyond that of um, how it happened. She was on a small independent label, and like I say, I wasn't really competing with the other writers for the big-time cuts, but I was real gratified that a song I'd written by myself was recorded by such a wonderful singer, even though it was a a small label and not a big income-generating cut, but it meant a lot to me. Well, Little Big Town had such a phenomenal run of success in the 1990s, 15 number one hits, uh, 30 top 10 singles, and just uh, an incredible track record for an independent publishing company. It was absolutely the right time, the right place, the right people. And, you know, when you build something that is successful like that, you are, of course, going to attract the attention of a larger company. And that's exactly what happened when Sony ATV bought Little Big Town and then hired you to come work there. Uh, You had been an independent guy up to that point, um, you know, with Little Big Town and Combine before it. In what ways was the environment of a large corporate publisher uh, an adjustment for you, given, you know, the background that you had come from? Well, as you say, I had never really worked for a corporation before. It had always been independent companies, either someone else's or my own. So I was nervous about going into the corporate world, but the president of Sony ATV Nashville was a lady named Donna Hilly, who had worked for Tree International earlier on, which had later been bought by Sony and became Sony Publishing and then Sony ATV. And Donna was just a great person to work for because she had a lot of confidence in me running the creative department. She was the kind of person that hired good people for each department. And as long as they were doing a good job, she left them alone and supported them and encouraged them. And she liked to try to make the company still feel like the local independent company it was when it was Tree International. And a lot of people that were there still called it Tree I think some still do, and they, but they felt that way, that it was still Tree International, that it was not part of the giant Sony International Corporation. So she was good at making it feel that way. She handled most of the contact with the New York office and with other offices. So I really kind of operated in the same way um, that I had been, except that instead of dealing with about a dozen writers, I was dealing with about 140 when I first got there. Now, of course, that includes artists who weren't coming into the office every day, but they had a lot of artist writers, but they were out on the road, but were signed there as for their publishing. 
Well, one of the difficult assignments that you had at Sony ATV was to trim the writer roster, meaning that you um, had to not renew the contracts of some of the writers there. Um, talk about being a businessman who has to make wise decisions and and be a good steward of uh, a company's resources, but still have to do the kind of emotional tough work of you know, letting people go that are songwriters, that are people who have, they're doing what, what you did and you, you obviously can identify with them um, and very much imagine yourself in their shoes. It was very, very hard. Um, I always said that at Little Big Town Music, we were blessed to start when we did because the music business was very down. And then I always say we were blessed to end when we did because 10 years later we had been through this huge boom in the country music world. And the boom was starting to wind down. There were a lot of writers there and artist writers there who were signed to these huge deals, deals with huge royalty advance payments during the boom times. Now the boom is winding down. The records are not selling like the records had been selling before. The future was not looking so bright. So one of my mandates was to reduce the roster. I wasn't given a certain number, but I, along with people from the accounting department, from the licensing and copyright departments, we had to have these meetings and analyze where the successes were, who was doing well, who had a lot of red ink with the company from big advances that were not earning it back. And we just had to make, it's not pleasant to talk about, but we had to make some hard choices and we just had to let some writers go. We had to, in other words, not renew their contracts as the contracts ran out. There were a few cases where I met with some writers and I said, look, the contract is running out. We'd like to renew you, but we cannot renew you at the previously negotiated terms. We've got to reduce the advances. And I had a couple of writers that did choose to stay on instead of go looking for another deal who wound up doing very well in their careers. Well, as you say, you inherited a, a staff of writers at Sony, and that included some legendary guys like Bobby Braddock and, and Bill Anderson, um, but quite an impressive list of young songwriters joined the staff uh, during your time there. And I'm thinking of people like Miranda Lambert, uh, Eric Church, Blake Shelton, Marty Stewart, Dirk Bentley, Rascal Flatts. Um, but one of the uh, writer artist that you were involved with signing was Taylor Swift when she was a very young teenager. Uh, how do you look at a, a young kid like that and see that potential and say, yeah, this, this kid's going to be something. We're going to make this investment. One of the song pluggers named Arturo Buenahora, um, who I worked very closely with, um, Arturo brought her in to me and he had been meeting with her and listening to her music. And she sat down and she played for me. And, you know, you can't describe star quality. You can't explain extreme talent. But she sat there with her Taylor guitar and just played a few songs for me. And she was just so professional. It was like, you'd expect a 14-year-old to look at their hand when they're changing chords on a guitar, for example. Well, she never looked at her hands. She was so accomplished at the guitar that it was just like part of her. It was just part of the entire presentation. And she just had the charisma. She had 
wonderful songs. And of course, we helped her get into some co-write situations to develop a lot of other songs. But there was just something special there that just made you say, wow, I want to be part of this. So after nearly a decade in the corporate world, you returned to independent music publishing again when you launched Green Hills Music in 2007. What were you most excited about as you stepped back into that role? I guess just about being able to make all my own decisions without any corporate approval at any time whenever I felt it was appropriate. I think just the flexibility of a smaller independent company and the ability to make decisions based on your opinions and your passions I guess I guess it was that the the independent world was just much more appealing in many ways for a guy like me. So in recent years you've gotten back into songwriting as a personal creative outlet and kind of wound up stumbling into creating this niche for yourself as uh, I don't know, maybe the uh, poet laureate of Route 66, for lack of a better term. Um, talk about that. A good lifelong friend of mine named Joe Lesh, um, he was born along Route 66 in St. Louis, and his family traveled Route 66 from St. Louis to California and back several times. So he had this nostalgic feeling about it, and he started sort of getting involved in the Route 66 culture. I mean, it is a niche market, and there are people with lots of passion about preservation of Route 66, which was the first continuous highway across the country from um, Chicago to actually to the Santa Monica Pier in L.A., And a lot of it still exists. So Joe got caught up in that and he got me to travel Route 66 with him. And that's what got me interested in it. So after our first trip, which was actually from California to Oklahoma City, I wrote this song where I said pretty much everything I could think of to say about Route 66. And then he challenged me and said, why don't you write an album? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I've said all I know to say, but I did. I don't know. The muse just hit and it's hard to say. And I hadn't experienced that since my very early days as a songwriter, but I did start coming up with song after song. It was a specific thing that I had a passion for and it just happened. It's the Arizona desert in Chicago wind. It's a midnight diner up around the bend. A stalled out engine and a tire to fix that old 66. And the rhythm of the asphalt goes on and on and on, like the pounding of a heart beating free and strong. And I came up with a name, the Road Crew, just to put a name of who was playing on the songs from the Mother Road album about Route 66. Joe and I were had a little band we were playing, and we just changed the name of that to The Road Crew and started playing some of these songs. And fast forward, after playing a few festivals, the International Route 66 Association christened us the official musical ambassadors of Route 66. So The Road Crew plays a lot of rockabilly music and these songs about Route 66. We've since done a couple of other albums of similar kind of music. And we play local gigs around Middle Tennessee here, but we do two or three Route 66 festivals a year. 
And we have a lot of fun doing that. So that's very gratifying. And it's, it's really what we do for fun. And we're very serious about it. So I'm, I'm a proud member of the road crew and happy to be writing songs about Route 66. I want to ask you about something that I don't think we've ever even talked about before, um, but something that made an impression on me when I was a kid. I remember um, every weekend you would come home with a giant milk crate full of cassette tapes, and these were songs that aspiring songwriters had sent to your company. And even though you were working with the most successful songwriters in Nashville and you were at the pinnacle of your career, you would spend most every Sunday afternoon listening to these tapes by complete unknown writers who were trying to make inroads uh, in Nashville. And at the time, I just assumed, well, that's, you know, what music publishers do on Sunday afternoon. Now I realize that had they sent them to any other publisher, they probably would have just been thrown in the trash. Um, What is it about the way that you're wired that made you want to make that time investment? Well, it's really hard to say. I mean, I just read this autobiography from Rick Hall, and he learned from his father sort of a work ethic of, I don't remember exactly the words, but it was something like work harder than anybody else and do what you do better than anybody else does it. And I think it was just a passion for the kind of work I was doing and just wanting to to build a successful company. But also, I never forgot the people who took time to listen to me when I was trying to be taken seriously and trying to get my songs heard. There was a guy named Mark Sherrill at Al Al Gallico Music. I would bring songs into him when I was still at the advertising agency and still trying to be a writer. But he would encourage me so much that it made me grow faster as a songwriter and each time I would go in to see him he would say my gosh I can't believe you're getting so much better so fast but a lot of it was his encouragement and Johnny Wilson's encouragement but people along the way I think most people in the music business don't really forget who helped them get to where they were and they kind of want to pay it forward this is before the term pay it forward was invented but I think that's probably part of it. I wanted to give people a chance. And 99% of those people that were sending in tapes, they didn't really have a serious shot, but they at least got heard. Right. They had a chance with me and hopefully with some other people as well. Well, I would call that a commitment to fairness and uh, integrity, which is something that has marked your career from songwriting to music publishing and uh, everything in between. Thank you very much. Thank you for letting me put you in the hot seat. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters. 